Father, you are the God over all things. You made each of us in this room. You know what's going through our heads. And yet you have put on the agenda for tonight that this word will be what we all hear. So we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to see the significance of the events that have unfolded before our eyes. And we pray that we would go away from tonight captured by what you have done and by your son. And we would respond to you in a way that brings you honor and joy. Amen. I hate injustice. I don't know about you. There's something inside me that when things don't go right and there's injustice going on, it just makes my blood boil. So this morning, uh, I, wasn't even, I didn't even have this planned. I had another illustration planned. But this morning, I went to book a flight uh, for Sarah and I to, to get back from Queenstown uh, from when we'll be down there. And um, I went to book that because I'm like, we've just got to do it. We've got to hurry up. I was on Jetstar's page uh, and you're all going, there was your first mistake, right? <laughs> well, it gets worse. So the reason I was on Jetstar's page is because they've got this 10% price beat kind of guarantee. And, and actually, Air New Zealand were cheaper. And I know you're thinking, you should have just gone with Air New Zealand. Uh, but I was like, no, 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 10% cheaper is 10% cheaper. And I need to save all the money I can. And so I went on and I was like, click on this button to get this price beat guarantee to, to beat Air New Zealand's price by 10%. So I go on, I fill out the form, and I come up to some sales representative. And she was really nice. And she's like, oh, sorry, uh, you've come through to the wrong place. You have to go to this link and fill out this form. And I'm like, I, I kind of click on the link and see it in another browser. I'm like, it's the same place I was in. I'm like, oh, it's the same place I was in. Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, yeah, just go and do that and fill it out again. Off I go, I click it. And it does exactly the same thing. It takes me back to another representative after I fill it all in. And they go, oh, you've just come through to the wrong place. You need to fill out this link. And they give me the same link they've given me before. I'm like, what is with these people? And I'm starting to wonder, are they really going to give a price beat guarantee? Or do they have this like endless loop of sales representatives that are cheerful and nice and just want to go, oh, you've come through the wrong place. And so I kind of copied the first conversation and saved it. The second one, I said, I knew this would happen um, because it was exactly what I did last time. Can you actually sort this out? And went backwards and forwards. And he said, no, look, you really just need to do this. Refresh your browser, do all this stuff, and then click the link again. So I copied that, pasted it in like an email. I clicked the link again, and I went back to the first sales representative that I had. The same lady. And I'm like, I'm back again, and I've done exactly what you said, and I'm just really, really frustrated. I didn't have much time. I was trying to get some stuff done. And I'm like, what is this? Are you guys serious about it? And they're like, look, if you want to fix this, you need to go through to our customer services. I'm like, I feel like they're trying to make me not get this price beat guarantee. So I go through to customer services, and he's kind of like, I can't really help you totally right now. What's gone wrong? And he goes, you need to click this link. Gives me the same link. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Anyway, I'm being polite as I talk through it. I'm like, I really don't have time. Can you just give me like a voucher or something? Or is there something you can do? He's like, sorry, we can't really help with that right now. You need to go through this thing. And I'm just like so frustrated. And I just feel like the world is against me. Like Jetstar, it's just it's not right. I should be getting a cheaper flight. And now I don't know if the thing's gone, if I've missed it or what's kind of happening. I just went, stuff this. I'm going to come back tomorrow and see what happens. I hate injustice. I hate it. <laughs> It makes my blood boil. I get so frustrated. But I, I hate it when, when the big corporation rips off the consumer. Or when um, corruption contaminates justice. Uh, when the powerful leverage their influence for their own good. It just is not right. And my hunch is that for many of us, we too get angry at injustice. 
But so often, it's not really the greatest injustices of the world that fire us up. It's the ones that seem to affect me the most, or perhaps my wallet. Have you ever noticed that? You get fired up that McDonald's didn't give you exactly what you ordered. You're like, they're going to pay. Like, I'm going I'm to write McDonald's. I'm just talking about my own experience. Like, maybe this is just me. Um, often the things that rile us aren't the big things of life. They're the things really that there's a principle about and we need to make a point on it. Now, when was the last time you got robbed with one of the kind of big injustices of our world? If, if you look around at the kind of top injustices that people are talking about at the moment, uh, they talk about starvation, poverty, abuse, racism and gender equality. They seem to be the top injustices that our world is speaking of. Now, as Christians, we care about injustice because we have a God who is just. The whole system of justice that our kind of worldviews are based on is a kind of a Judeo-Christian worldview and we, we hold this view of justice. But I want to put it to you tonight that there's an injustice that is greater than all of those top five injustices society speaks about combined. There's an injustice that is bigger than all of them pulled together and it hardly ever raises our heart. It hardly ever makes our, our blood boil. And what we're going to see tonight is that you and I are the cause of it. Come with me to Luke 22, verse 66. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought Jesus before their Sanhedrin. The events leading up to this moment in verse 66 are events that have been recorded across the globe from Christian historians and secular historians alike. They record a trial of sorts, a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who's been passed backwards and forwards between different governors and leaders and rulers. They all record it. But the problem is, as we come along to this event that we all know and that the world knows, we kind of place this event of what went on with Jesus in a kind of long list of seemingly similar injustices that just come from the hand of humanity. We kind of see it as, yep, that's just part and parcel of the world that we're in. And it doesn't really raise much of our eyebrows. What I want us to do tonight is to slow down and to look through just the face value of the events that go on with Jesus' trial, to understand exactly what is actually happening here. And then I want us to, to step back and see why Luke has recorded these events the way he has, why Jesus has used some of the specific words that he has. Because in this passage, there's something of incredible significance for you and me. Incredible significance. The first thing I want us to note is the injustice of Jesus' treatment. The injustice of his treatment. Uh, we see that what happens is Jesus has just been betrayed by one of his own followers, Judas. He's been abandoned by the rest of his disciples. And, and then there's this kind of nighttime arrest. They take him, the Sanhedrin, the leaders that are there in the middle of the night. It's not public. There's no proper defense given. There's no procedure there. Uh, they're trying to get this kind of thing with Jesus done before the Sabbath because you can't kill on the Sabbath. And so they kind of, I know, right? It's a work. And so they, they, get, they get Jesus and they kind of, they, they start doing all sorts of stuff. Look at verse uh, 63 of chapter 22. 
The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things against him. I want you to imagine for a moment uh, that you witnessed a crime. You saw someone do something and then the police came along and they saw the person who did it and they started getting his head and smashing it through the glass window of the car he was up against. There's a sense in which even though we know someone has done something wrong, they're innocent until proven guilty. We'd outcry today. That's not fair. That's unjust. You can't do that at this point because the guy, you know, he needs to be fairly in a fair trial. But here, this is exactly what's happening. They've come along and there's been no fair trial. They're just kicking him. Prophesy, who hit you? You think you're so clever. That whole trial was really a no trial at all because it would have been illegal because there was no public witness. Even in this area, in that time of um, history, it was illegal to do that. You had to have a public trial. So in the morning, they go to the Romans. So the Jews couldn't execute. So they take Jesus to Pilate. Now, Pilate, he's kind of this, this Roman governor over the area. And his, his role is to make sure that there's, there's peace in the area. And his other role is to collect taxes for Rome. So all he cares about is that everyone's happy and that he's got the money. Now, that sounds like a great job. Like, I'm just the, the happiness police uh, and the money collector. Well, it's a great job for him because he was really not the nicest guy at all. It was quite strong. And he really didn't like people going up against his rule. And so when they take Jesus to Pilate, they think, let's try and use the nastiness of Pilate against this guy. Look at the way the whole trial is unjust. Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose up and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. See, they set up Jesus' wrongs to be exactly Pilate's raw spots. He's there to keep the peace. Jesus is subverting the nation, this man. He's not paying his taxes. Now, we know for sure that's a lie. Jesus had previously said that you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And so what? These rulers, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish kind of council are doing, is they're twisting the trial. How would you feel if that happened to your brother, your dad? That they went to court, but the evidence that was put forward was just wrong. But they said it so loudly that everyone just believed it. I, I want us to see here the injustice. No matter what you think of Jesus, who he is, even if this dude is just a guy, You've got to say, this is wrong. But then Pilate hears that he's a Galilean. Pilate, he doesn't want to deal with a problem. Ah, it's causing too much here. So he flick passes off to Herod because Herod was the ruler over the Galileans. Now, Herod, he's a nasty piece of work. Uh, this guy's family are just like butt ugly. And I don't mean in their looks, although they might have been, I don't really know, but in their character, in their ethics. Uh, Herod Antipas, who he's been taken to, his dad was called Herod the Great. Herod the Great was famous for, among other things, feeling a bit jealous when they heard that there was a child that would be born, who would be the king. And so what does he do? He kills every child who's a Hebrew under the age of two. Quality guy. That's his dad. 
And this Herod is just a chip off the old block. Uh, basically, John the Baptist, uh, he was around and had been doing great things, and Herod kind of liked John the Baptist a bit, but then Herod wanted to divorce his wife. John the Baptist said, you can't do that. John the Baptist spoke out, and Herod's new wife said, I want one thing, John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And she got what she asked for, because this is the type of family that they are. Jesus goes from Pilate to Herod. And in this trial, Herod's kind of excited to see him. See, Herod knew of Jesus, but he never had an opportunity to kind of get to know who he is and to talk to him and to see him. He wants Jesus to come along, but for all the wrong reasons. He wants Jesus to come so he can see some cool magic tricks. So he can see some some of the miracles that we've heard. He wants to see what Jesus can do. He's heard of him healing the sick, um, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. And so Herod wants Jesus to come along. Jesus gets there and says nothing. He won't do a thing. As a side note, there's a helpful lesson in this for all of us. If the reason that we come to Jesus is because we think we're going to see a miracle, we're no different from Herod. If the reason that we come to Jesus is because we think he's going to make our life better, he's going to give us amazing money, or he's going to help us to be able to walk or see, then we're coming for all the wrong reasons. We're just like some horrific king poking Jesus like an entertainment, fun-giving, life-breathing vending machine. We come to Jesus because we're convinced of who He is and because He is the King. Herod gets bored. He's had enough. He doesn't want this Jesus anymore. So he flick passes him back to Pilate and says, I've had enough. I'm not going to do anything. And so then he goes back to Pilate where you've got trial number three. You're like, what is going on? Pilate then, he he just wants to whip him. He's like, I don't really want to do what they're saying. I I just want to whip him. This whole thing is unjust. How would you feel if this was you? In verse 67, Jesus highlights the core of the problem. He says to them, chapter 2, verse 67, If I do tell you who I am, which is the question he's responding to, you will not believe. And if I ask you who I am, you will not answer. The core of the problem here is that Jesus knows there's no point in trying to answer because they're not even interested in any answer. There's no point in speaking at this trial because they're not even going to listen. They've already made their minds up. This thing is already set. He knows exactly what is going on. And so he refuses to play their games. There's no fair trial. There's no fair treatment at all in this. The whole thing is a massive injustice. Do you see that? This is wrong. This should make our blood boil. Why? Why did this happen like this? Well, the second thing I want us to see is the silence of his mouth. The silence of his mouth. If this were me at this point, I'd be screaming out as loud as I could. This is unfair. I'll be calling out to all my like buff mates, come and take out these Roman dudes. You know, I'd be trying to do whatever I possibly could. Be like, look over there and like run the other way. I don't know. There'd be so much I just want to say to go, this is wrong. This is not fair. I want to cry out. But Jesus doesn't say a word. 
Now, I don't know how many of you have um, red-letter Bibles. Let me show hands. Who's got a red-letter Bible here? It's no, no judgment. It's great. Good, good, good. Right. Uh, some red-letter Bibles, you know, they're helpful uh, at some points because they, they, they're kind of read uh, when the um, translators kind of think this is Jesus speaking. They kind of show us the words of Jesus. Um, sometimes, you know, there was, no, there was no red in the original manuscripts. Uh, they didn't kind of have Jesus' words in red. That wasn't how it was. But something that the red-letter Bibles are helpful for in this passage is that we see there's just not much red. Look at your page. There's lots of black. This is Jesus' trial, but he doesn't talk at all, basically. There's just a couple of little spots. In, in verse 23, verse 3, they ask him, are you the king of the Jews? All he says is, you have said it. Uh, 23, 6, Jesus did not answer Herod. This whole trial, he's silent. And, and it makes you wonder, Why? Why didn't he speak? The third thing we see is the innocence of his position. The innocence of his position. Despite the corruption of the whole situation, we now get to see how corrupt this actually is. The authorities... Not, not, not the kind of Jewish, God-fearing people, but the, the, the secular Roman authorities declare his innocence. Look at verse 4 of chapter 23. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. Look at verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders and the people and said to them, you've brought me this man as one who subverts the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I've found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. And neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Do you feel the weight of this? This whole situation seems to be careering towards some point where Jesus is going to get smashed. And it's just not fair. It's not right. I get up from my computer screen kind of enraged at Jetstar because they didn't give me the price speed guarantee. The secular authorities say he's innocent, but he gets condemned anyway. Even if Jesus was just a man, this is horrific, isn't it? A man put to death when even the courts say he's innocent, but it happens anyway. This should make our guts wrench. We should be outraged that such a thing would happen. What it shows us is what happens when you leave justice in the hands of broken people like us. Our own ideals, our own priorities, our own pride get in the way. How often are your judgments clouded by your position, by what you want others to think of you? I think the injustice of this shows us why Christians should always speak out for justice in our society. The Bible sets this up as a horrific wrong. We should be people who are known for speaking for the poor, uh, the oppressed. We should be speaking justice in the world around us, for ourselves, for others. But the thing that's clear is the innocence of Jesus' position. 
The fourth thing we see just on face value as we look at these events is the power of the people. The power of the people. At every point throughout this narrative, Luke shows it was the people crying out for Jesus' death. Come with me and just read together and see this whole event happen in slow motion. Luke 23, verse 18. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Take Jesus away, release Barabbas. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him! Crucify him! A third time, he said, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices won out. Do you feel the weight of those five words? The power of the people. Their voices won out. The popular voice does all sorts of wrong. We so often listen to what the world says, but here it's so obvious this is a massive travesty. Their voices won out. This is so wrong. The innocent remained silent while the guilty lifted their voices in hatred and the guilty won. This is wrong. Why were people so turned against him? Why would they do such a thing? Who would say such a thing? That this man should die, even though the secular authorities say he's innocent. Verse 24. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, who'd been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. When you just look at the facts, no matter what you think of Jesus, it's a horrific injustice, isn't it? This is not right. But if we stop the story right here, if we just looked at the face value of what's going on, we would actually miss the incredible significance of the way Luke has recorded this event for us. I don't know how many of you have been to a 3D movie. Show of hands if you've been to a 3D movie. Oh, yeah. Great. So you know when you go to a 3D movie, right? And, and you sit down and you kind of watch and you forget to put your glasses on and you look at the 3D movie without your glasses. And so it's kind of like you can, you can work out what's going on. I can see there's kind of stuff happening. There's people looking weird as, like from some cool 80s movie where they're kind of all the 80s colors, the red and the blue, and you're like... Oh. But you're like, you can work out what's happening... But when you put those 3D glasses on, it's like the plot that you could see in here before suddenly comes alive. But not only does it come alive, it kind of jumps off the screen and like stuffs you in the face. Like, you know, stuff comes out at you and you're like, whoa, did you see that? And suddenly you feel like you're in the story and you're interacting with what's going on. Well, the way Luke writes this account, 
is kind of like the way that when you see it, when you go deeper into what he's saying and why he's brought these together and what Jesus was pointing to, that we can get what's actually happening up close and personal. See, Luke wants to show us how these events that happened at Jesus' trial actually come at us. They start getting in our faces. So, get ready to see what Luke sees. And if you're a visual learner, maybe write down 3D glasses, draw some, you know, do some creative drawing brain break moment to go creative vision 3D glasses are now going to show me as we look in this passage, and we'll have to do a little bit of work, but we will see this passage come out and slap us in the face. The key to the glasses, the key to the significance of Jesus for you and I is highlighted by the fact in this passage that it's the, really the only thing that Jesus says. Come with me to Luke 22, verse 67. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And here it comes. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I want you to, want you to get this for a moment. If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, the only thing he basically says, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. I'm not going to play your game. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. From these four verses here, Jesus uses words that Luke shows us, pull together four different um, words or concepts or identities about Jesus. Uh, There's four little lines there on your page. Um, The first one is Messiah. You can write that down. King. The second one is this Son of Man. So Messiah is the first one. The second one is the Son of Man. The third one is the right hand of the power of God. And the fourth one is the outlaw. We'll get to that in a second. So let me show you, number one, with the 3D glasses, what this Messiah means. The word Messiah just means king. But actually what's drawing together in this is one part of the Bible from 2 Samuel 7. Now you should hear that. That's a key part of the Old Testament. It's an area that you need to know. Because there's a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that says one would come. It's a promise that's given to David that one from his family would build God's, um, God a house, would build him a temple. And that he would rule forever. Uh, look with me. Uh, we'll read some of it. 2 Samuel 7 verse 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after your descendant. Sorry, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod, with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Messiah here just means king and there is a king who is promised, a promised king who will come from the line of David that will rule forever. We kind of see that fulfilled in Solomon as Solomon comes along after David and he does build God's house 
but he does be disciplined because he rejects God. And in the end, it's a complete failure. And so they're still waiting for the one who will come and rule God's people forever. This king, are you the Messiah? Luke is bringing together the fact that Jesus is this king. Jesus is the promised king, a man who would come. They all thought it would be a man. Here is a king. So now I want you to apply that to the injustice of the narrative that's just happened. This is not just some mere man who's on trial. This is a king, the promised king, a good king, who has been treated horrifically. It just heightens the injustice of it all, doesn't it? Imagine inviting Queen Elizabeth in, putting like a robe on her, and then just belting her and going, who hit you? She's the queen. A good queen, I take it. But here, this is the king, and the whole thing is just unjust. It kind of raises and, and makes us go, what is going on? He is the Messiah. The second image is the one of the Son of Man. Now, that image comes from Daniel 7. We looked at it a few weeks ago, but come with me, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. It's on the screen. And just see what's being picked up here, because we're starting to picture this, this, put together this 3D picture. I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's God. And was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom. So that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This son of man is is kind of the one who comes with the full authority of God himself. He is given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom. And it's not just a little kingdom. Not like that Queen of England. You know, she's got a reasonable amount of land that's hers. But this is the one who has authority to rule over every people, nation and language. Do you see who this is? This is not just any king, but this is God's king. The king over all the universe. The the, the king that the Jews had been waiting for. He had more authority at this moment than every other human ruler who ever lived or who ever would live combined. He's the ruler over all. And yet Pilate and Herod and the crowd uh, and, and the Sanhedrin, they all think they're in control. They're thinking they're putting him in. Do you see the injustice of who it is now and the wrongness? But it helps you start to understand why he was silent. Why he need not answer these pretend kings. These pretend rulers that were putting him on trial, how dare they put him on trial? Do you not know who he is? They will answer to him. This is not the last trial he will face. At the next trial, he will be the ruler over all and all rulers and authorities and peoples and languages and nations will come to him. That's where we see this third image of the right hand of the power of God. It's a quote from Psalm 110. Have a look with me. Psalm 110, verse 1. Write write these um, passages down. They're helpful to know because they all kind of fill us in on who Jesus is. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. The one who is seated at the right hand of the power of God is Jesus. 
That's what he's saying. That's what he says back to them as they are putting him on trial. Do you not know who I am? I am in control. This is the plan. You don't judge me. I'm silent because I know what's going on and I will judge you. How dare you think you're in control at this moment? When you have eyes to see it, suddenly the situation switches and you see Jesus is in control. And it heightens the level of injustice, doesn't it? This is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Matthew's account of uh, the events leading to Jesus' death, uh, he records what Jesus says when his disciples try and take control, when they try and get their swords and chop off the kind of the ear. He says this, and I want you to feel the weight of it, the authority behind it. Uh, it's Matthew twenty six fifty three. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Imagine being those who sentenced this king to death, who hit this king in the gut, who treated him wrongly, unjustly, inappropriately. Do you hear the power of this king? This is the son of God. This is God the son, which is exactly how the Sanhedrin summarizes Jesus' claims. And it helps you to see they definitely thought he's God. When people come along and go, is Jesus, did the Bible really say Jesus is God? You cannot be any more God than all these three, four pictures coming together. And that makes us feel the injustice of this even more. The scandal, the horror, the one who spoke and creation came into being remains silent. While his creation punched him in the gut and unjustly treat him. He's sustaining the heartbeat of those that are hitting him and treating him wrongly. He's, he's sustaining their breath while at the same time remaining silent. Who would do this to that sort of king? What would it take to treat him that way? Who would be so horrific? I'm flabbergasted as I look at how they treated Jesus. It makes me angry. It is so wrong to treat him this way. Especially when you see who he is in his full 3D glory of all these images coming together. But there's one more image that's behind all of what's being said. Luke had tipped us off to this image just a few verses earlier. In chapter 22, verse 37, he talks about Jesus, or Jesus talks about Jesus, as an outlaw. As an outlaw. Uh, Come with me. Uh, 22, verse 37. Jesus said, For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. He was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. What Jesus is doing here, that it was counted among the outlaws, he's actually quoting part of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, where it talks about him being numbered with the transgressors. And he's saying what Isaiah 53 is all about is me. What is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. And so we've got to come and understand what Isaiah 53 adds to this picture. And here is where we start to see the significance for you and me. If you're new to Christianity and you haven't read through this part of the Bible of Isaiah, it's written 700 years before Jesus. But this is a great section of the Bible uh, to remember, to look at, to understand, because we see in it so clearly promised what Jesus' death 
and resurrection is all about. I'm not going to put these verses on the screen. I want you to flick in your Bibles to Isaiah uh, 53. Hear the flick of pages or the tapping of capacitive touchscreens. Thanks for laughing. Isaiah 53. You find it about the middle or under the Isaiah section in chapter 53. And as we read through this part of the Old Testament, what my hope is, is that all the things that are happening in this scene of the trial start to come together for you. And we see with incredible clarity the significance of this event for you and me. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what we heard? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up like a young plant, like the root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him and we were healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked, with the outlaws. And with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence, had it not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Who is this part of Isaiah talking about? Do you see it? A servant who would come. What, what do we see about this servant? We see the injustice of his treatment, the silence of his mouth, the innocence of his position and the power of the people. Come and look and you see it all laid out. The injustice of his treatment. He was horribly treated. Verse 3, despised, rejected, oppressed, afflicted. We see the silence of his mouth. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers, this servant did not open his mouth. Ultimately, the reason Jesus was silent wasn't just because he was king, but because he was the one Isaiah had been speaking of. There was something bigger going on. He didn't want to write this justice at that point, for there was something he was doing for others. In this situation, the innocence of his position, uh, they made his grave with a wicked, verse 9, and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had, spe- had not spoken deceitfully. <laughs> the power of the people, verse 3. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Everything that happens in these trials, Luke has pulled together, Jesus is hinting at, to show is all about Him. It's all about Him. And then when we understand this background of the outlaw who would come, the suffering servant that would suffer for others of Isaiah 53, 
What does Luke record next? This man called Barabbas. Why does Luke record Barabbas? Why do we need to know that his name was Barabbas, this murderer and this man that was in jail that they were releasing because of some custom? But they, Why do we need to know his name? Was it just that Luke was a doctor and so he had to get historical accuracy and so get his name in? Now, I think Barabbas is there because this is the bit of the 3D movie that pops out and slaps us in the face. It's the bit of this story that involves you and me. See, this servant who would come would die for our iniquities. Look with me, verse 4 of Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we turn, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on, sorry, punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of you and me. Barabbas is recorded here so we might realize that this is about us. Jesus here steps into the place of the guilty one. And he allows us to step into the place of the innocent one. Barabbas here stands as the man who is treated, well, should be treated like we should be treated. We have not treated God rightly. We are guilty of rejecting him, of ignoring him, of even just ignoring the injustices that went on towards Christ the King. We've turned our backs on God. We have not treated him as we ought, but he here remains silent. Why? So that we might recognize the unbelievable reality is that my sin sent Jesus to his death. My rejection of God made Jesus stand silent so that he would take the penalty that I deserve. Jesus did this that day with his creation being so unjust and wrong and unfair, not to mention the the wrath of God poured out on him for the things that we had done, all poured on him. He did this with us in mind. This is about you and me. Does it sicken you as it does for me? But the injustice of Jesus' trials were because of me, because of my rebellion. Because of my sin. Paul records in 2 Corinthians 5 these words. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him we could become the righteousness of God. No better deal will ever be offered to you in your life. the guilty one taking my place, standing in for me, taking the punishment of God for me. And what is our response to Jesus? How do we come away from understanding this passage in its 3D glory? We need to be determined to appreciate what Jesus did for us. We can stand back and say, what an amazing God 
that he would stand there silent, that he would take it in the gut, that he would take the wrath of God for you and me so we could be set free? Man, what a man. What a God. Do you know anyone else ever that is like that? That has done that for you in your place? How great it is to stand and see that this Jesus died for me. We need to be determined to be joyful. Because Jesus stood silent while his creation rejected him. We need to make sure we don't slip into thinking that that we deserve this. That here we are, that that, that I I deserve this salvation. You know, I've been a good person or I've done these things. No, we are people like Barabbas who deserve death and judgment and rejection from God. But because of Jesus' silence, we can stand forgiven. Friends, when we look at what went on at this cross, when we recognize who Jesus is in all his 3D glory, and we see our involvement in this story, it makes me stand back and say, where else do we have to go? But to the one who has died for me. What a certain joy I have that the King of kings and the Lord of lords stood in my place. He absorbed the penalty that I deserve so that now I might be free. Friends, if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you've not put your life in his hands, then can I encourage you tonight, stop mucking around. (laughs) Come and look at what history claims, at who history claims Jesus is. Come and see what he has done. If you are someone that has put your life in Jesus' hands, then won't you join me in getting rid of every ounce of complacency. (laughs) When we just get on with life and we think that there are other things more important than God the Son standing in my place, suffering my death so I could be set free. And when you stand and joyfully worship this Creator who has done so much for us and given us absolute certainty, let's pray and thank our God for what He has done in Jesus. Father God, we want to thank you tonight that though we have turned our back on you, you still treat us with so much love. We ask that you'd help us to be horrified at the injustices of what happened to Jesus. To be even more horrified that it was our sin that held him there. And we ask that we would walk away from hearing your word tonight, recognizing who Jesus is with great joy and thankfulness for our future is secure because he has died in our place and for that we are so thankful. Father God, we ask that you'd help us to live as people filled with joy because you have loved us so much. You are the Messiah. You are the King. We worship you, Jesus. Amen.